Jackson, Ashley, Stephanie, thank you guys so much. How are we doing this morning? Good. Hey, good morning. Just me and Liz. All right. Hey, you guys grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude. Jude is where we're going to be today. Continuing in our series called Contending for the Gospel. Um, we're going to take a moment and enter into a time of corporate prayer together. Uh, and then, man, we're walking through some wild stuff today. Uh, seriously, really, legitimately. Uh, well, let's take a moment, uh, if we can, together uh, and, and just enter into a moment of prayer, very specifically um, that we would grasp the reality uh, of this text this morning. Um, and I say that because it's just a challenging one. So the body of this letter that we're going to look at this morning, verses 5 through 16, really addresses some things that, quite frankly, we, we typically don't talk about. We, we might actually not really have a whole lot of life, historical background, foundation to understand even some of these things. So I'll just be very transparent with you. I need your prayers this morning that I would communicate well and clearly uh, and, and not just in a way to, that, that would be effective uh, but truly that the gospel would be present, truly that there would be uh, moments where uh, i got to say some hard things this morning, stuff that's not super fun, um, but I, I need to, to be obedient to the scriptures and share truth uh, and experience grace in the midst of that. So I cover your prayers in this moment as well, but I just want to pray for all of us. Look, we, we've been talking in the past few weeks about how um, all the scriptures God breathed, it's profitable for us, for correction, for teaching, for, for rebuke, for encouragement, conviction. All of these things come through the reading, the hearing, the understanding of the very word of God. And we're going to see a, a, a text that a lot of us haven't seen very consistently in our life, and yet it will yield these things. So let's just pray and ask the Lord that he'll do that in these moments. Heavenly Father, Father, we have entered into worship together this morning, and we long to listen to your word, Father, and hear it, but may we also actively worship you in the midst of hearing it. May we love you, God, may we be corrected as much as we're encouraged convicted as much as we feel your compassion and your comfort. God, would you give us wisdom to teach us how to walk in the Spirit, to live lives that honor you. Father, to, to again come to this place and by your grace be able to believe the gospel, to live in its implications and its realities. Father, and to live out the love that you've given us in your son, Jesus. God, I am weak. Um, would, would, you, would you give words uh, to your servant to, to help him honor you and love you um, faithfully? Make them clear. In Christ's name, amen. Jude, this morning, uh, we're going to look at verses 5 through 16, and we're going to jump right in and read it, because I want you to, we're going to read this together, we'll try to read it a little slow, it's going to take a moment to process, uh, obviously I'm, I'm reiterating this over and over, that hey, this is, this is some different types of things, there's some historical things in here, uh, this is really going to be helpful for us this morning uh, to, to read through this, uh, and look, here, here's the reality, we talked about it a little bit last week, we walked out of a series, nine weeks uh, on foundation, us describing the foundation of who we are, 
not just who we are as believers individually, but who we are as Double Oak Community Church, as in you and me, that all of us together, our local body of faith, who we are is people who believe the gospel is everything. And we want that to, to shine through as we live in these three very particular ways that we call our core values, that we believe in the gospel, we live in the gospel, and we live out the gospel. These, these huge, grandiose, giant things. And then as we walk toward Easter, we've got these three weeks, and we say, hey, we want to we use these three weeks and preach this little tiny book. Why do we do that? Why are we going to read the strange things that we're going to read today? Because we want to teach the whole counsel of God. So here's what I would offer you to. I think you're going to read this passage and you might see these things and say, I don't know that this is like really hitting me in this moment. This is like where I am. This is for you. This truth is for you. It is for your life. And God will use it. So let's just ask the Lord that he will set into our hearts the truth of this word this morning uh, as different as it is. Beginning of verse 5 says this. Now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. As a feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. It might be strange to say it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, there's a lot here. And contextually, we're reading things that are probably vastly different than what you and I would typically read in a gospel account or something that we would read in a number of epistles that would encourage us to pray with others, to, to share our lives with others. We get a deep historical treatment that's written truly to a Jewish people. So Jude writes in this manner, and he references all these Jewish things 
because his hearers, those to whom he's writing, are those who've trusted in Christ, but they come from a Jewish background. And so last week we talked about looking through the first four verses that, that Jude effectually is calling them uh, to, to account, to, to recognize, to see, to deal with the fact that there's something serious he has to tell them. Because he wants to write to them about the salvation they share. He basically says, I want to I write you about the fun stuff, but i got to tell you some hard stuff. There are these people who have crept in, these, these teachers, these leaders who have come in, and by deception they've entered the church... And they are, this is the language you use, perverting the grace of God into sensuality and denying Jesus as master and Lord. So, what does this have to do with the gospel? There's some really, really, really big stuff here that's foundational. Uh, we've talked a lot about how here at Double Oak, especially in the last 10 weeks, that the gospel is everything to us. We want to be gospel people. We want there to be a gospel culture here. And culture is an interesting word because I think everybody knows it when they see it, but they can't really describe it. Right? I, I think especially people would, would define it as a feeling. Or I think the kids say it this way these days, a vibe. Right? Right? They say a vibe. And they think they invented it and it's new and the Beach Boys did this forever ago. Right? Um, but, but ultimately, it's, it's this thing that people, I, I grasp onto this, this, this thing. It's, it might in some ways be intangible, but I can feel it. I can experience it. Um, Jude is working really, really hard to address in this moment two things. Culture, the feeling, the experience quite frankly, the expressed beliefs, but he's also, in this moment, in verses 5 through 16, he's really teaching doctrine. He's really talking about the things that we believe as Christians and effectually how we should live. Um, there are a bunch of little books that I think changed my life, but this is one um, that has consumed me recently. Uh, it's this little book by Nine Marks. It's called The Gospel. Uh, Ray Ortland is the author uh, a number of you might know him. He's a pastor at Emmanuel Baptist in Nashville. Brilliant writer, thinker, uh, incredible. Uh, he talks about so deeply what makes the church the church and how the gospel should influence, impact, and quite frankly, be the foundation of our churches. So doctrine and culture. Doctrine, a set of beliefs, the truth of the faith to which we hold, culture, feelings, the relationships, the life that we express. And here's the thing. Typically, all of us lean one way or another. Like, I think each of us has a propensity to go to one side or the other. So there are some of us that are doctrine people, right? These are the, the Enneagram 1s. Right? These are, these are the, this is, this is what it is to be right. These are the things that are right. These are the things that are true. And then there's culture people. And they're the sevens. They're the fun. They're the feeling. It's about, it's about connecting with people. It's about relationships. One of the things that Jude is doing is saying, look, we have to have both. We need a culture that has true doctrine and yet exemplifies true grace. I think this is one of the most helpful New Testament texts because it really, really describes in, in just, just short, succinct words what life, is called, or what life is in Christ is called to be and how we live as Jesus lived. And it's John chapter 1, verse 14, and you know this, and it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's what's happening in this moment. Jesus is described as one who is full of, who embodies totally both grace and truth. So I want to give you this formula. Um, I think there's a slide for this. Yeah, so, so Ray does this in his little book, and I would really recommend this to you. Uh, I can get you connected, or you can have my copy, or we can figure it out. But um, here's the thing. Gospel doctrine minus gospel culture. So basically, if we have all the truth, but we have none of the expression lived out, then we end up in this place where we're hypocrites. Because we have the truth, and yet we don't live like it. There's no expression of love. There's no expression of mercy. There's no expression of care in our truth. Go the other way, and you get gospel culture minus gospel doctrine. That one was a typo. It should also say weak there. Um, But gospel culture minus gospel doctrine makes a church that is just weak. It's just weak. There's nothing to it. Why? Well, we're trying to express and live out and love one another, but there's no basis for it. There's no truth for it. There's no foundation upon which we stand. So if we have all grace and no truth, the church will crumble. There must be a firm foundation, a rock on which we stand, right? The gospel. So what does this have to do with Jude? Jude is telling these believers in the church to which he writes that there are these people who've crept in and they're trying to pervert grace. And so here's what he means. He's saying, if there's no real truth, then there's no real grace. If there's no real truth about who Jesus is and what he's done and the lives that we're called to live in him, because this passage talks about holiness. It talks about things that we're called to do and it condemns those who live in ungodly ways. If we don't have that truth, then we're really not going to express real grace to each other. We're not really going to experience it. We're going to walk really quickly through these verses today. There's some heavy stuff here. Uh, Do your best uh, to hang in as as tightly as you can. Verse 5, he says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. A couple of things are happening here. One, this is a gospel reminder. At the outset of all these challenging and difficult things that he's going to say and and be very confrontational about uh, human sexuality and and about sensuality and about all the things that God calls us to to, and the way in which we're called to live, from the very beginning, it starts with the gospel. He says, I want to remind you of what God has done in Christ. We've talked about this and we've been building to this and leading up to a couple weeks. We've used this example over and over. When you look at Exodus 20, and that's where the Ten Commandments are found, you and I typically go to this place that we, should, we see you should have no other gods before me. But that's not where it starts. Look at Exodus 20, verse 1, and you see this proclamation, you get this understanding That this is God who has saved, who has redeemed, who has taken this people. He's delivered them out of Egypt. God's providence, his salvation, his care is at the forefront of every instruction he would ever give us. So Jude does this to help them understand. He does it so far as to even say that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. 
Is that strange? It seems, it, it, like I would think for most of us that would seem strange. Because when you and I read the Old Testament, I don't see Jesus' name pop up a ton. Right? We, it takes till we get to Isaiah, essentially. So, so what is Jude doing in saying this? I want us to look at a couple of scriptures because Jude's not the only New Testament writer um, who, who understands what's happening. One, let's set the stage um, for, for what's happening in this moment. This is, I think, yep, this is a wrong text. I wrote down Exodus 14. We're just firing on all cylinders today. Um, wrote down Exodus 14. This is actually Numbers 14. You'll have to forgive the screen, and I'm going to read this to you. Uh, then all the congregation, you know this story. This is, this is God's people delivered out of Egypt. The congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and little ones will become afraid. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Do you remember this story? God delivers his people. They are about to be able to go into the land of Canaan. So they send this group of spies to go check it out. And they come back and they all say, no, the people are too large. There are giants. There is, there's no way we can take this land. And Caleb begs and pleads and says, look, look you, we can do this. Not in our own strength because of what God has done. These people grumble and they complain. This is what's happening. And Jude is describing the kind of people who don't trust the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 10, these ones are, these ones are right. You can trust these, okay? Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, says this. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud of the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And listen to this. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So Paul has the same understanding that Jude does. That those who do not believe, those who do not trust the Lord, they're destroyed. They had an opportunity to experience mercy, an opportunity to experience grace, and yet they're destroyed. Why? Because they don't believe. But what about Jesus being there? How is Jesus the rock? Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 27. We'll kind of wrap up this little section um, this is Hebrews eleven twenty three to 27. It says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach, read these words, the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So Paul writes and says, these people that were in the wilderness, those who trusted in Jesus, experienced this rock that was Christ. And the writer of Hebrews would say that Moses is pursuing Christ in the sense that it's his reproach, it's the reproach of Jesus 
this greater wealth in the treasure of Egypt, and as seeing him who is invisible. So what is Jude doing in this moment? You need to hear this and see this very clearly. At the outset of this passage, Jude is describing and presenting and helping believers see that Jesus is pre-existent. He is co-eternal with the Father. And therefore, because Jesus is one with the Lord, he is with this Israel even in the wilderness. What Jude is doing, he's demonstrating that Jesus has worked in redemptive history, not just from the moment of the incarnation, but from creation till now and beyond. He's also saying, as he's going to lay out everything in this passage, that the ones who are judged are judged by Jesus, the Savior. In these, in these short words, what's happening here, Jude is calling for people to repent and believe the gospel, to trust in the God who saves in Jesus Christ himself. If we fail to trust the Lord, we're going to receive judgment and be separated from him. And that sounds like judgment, but it's truth. And with it is great grace. God offers his mercy to us in Christ. Look into verse 6. It says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This sounds weird. Angels who don't stay in their position of authority. Here's what Jude is doing. He's describing this passage in Genesis 6. And he's interpreting it through this, this work, this ancient writing called First Enoch, that all of his hearers understand. Now, I want to be very clear and say that what Jude is doing is not saying that he's, he's not quoting something else as Scripture. He's actually using it in an interpretive moment. He's creating an illustration so that these hearers can understand the gravity of the sin of those people who are coming in and creeping in and teaching things that are not holy and are not true. This is the Genesis 6 uh, verse that will kind of help us understand this. Genesis 6 verse 4 says this. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the Son of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So you guys may have read through Genesis or you ever do your Bible reading like through the year. And you get into some of these early chapters in Genesis and stuff starts getting really strange. And you don't understand what's happening. What's going on in this moment, Jude is describing these people, these Nephilim. And if you look to that Numbers 14 passage where, where the spies go in and they see all of these people in the land that God has promised, the Nephilim are mentioned. Who are these people? Ultimately, they are fallen angels who left their place worshiping the Lord for intimacy and relationship with human women on earth. It sounds like very Old Testament stuff, right? What Jude is doing is he's referencing these ancient writings so his hearers would understand the position and the place that they held. I want to I want to quote somebody who can say it a lot better than me. This is a great theologian. His name's Gene Green. Um, I don't know, I wonder if his parents like really thought about naming him Gene Green, right? Um, rhyming works for some people. This is what he describes uh, surrounding these verses in particular. Jude's purpose in evoking the story of the angelic fall is to demonstrate that those who hold a privileged position 
are not exempt from divine judgment if they embrace sin. So here's what's happening in this moment. Jude is saying that these teachers, all these people who have crept in, they hold these positions, these places of authority. But he's saying, he's using this story as a reference to help them understand, no matter what position you hold or what title you have, even in the church, if you embrace sin continually, if you're turning people away from the gospel, there will be judgment for you. And then he goes into a third scenario uh, in verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, he says, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Here's what's happening in Genesis 19. If you go to that passage and look at what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, this is what you'll see. There are these corrupt, evil men who are seeking to have relationship, intimacy, physically with these angels who are actually embodied as men. And what he's doing here in this moment, Jude is saying they're filled with unrighteousness because they are departing from the natural order that God has given. They're departing from the natural order that God has given. All right, here's the hard stuff. Um, There is undoubtedly within this teaching the rejection of homosexuality as the scriptures instruct. And we live in Chelsea, Alabama, so to some people that's not very confrontational to say out loud, and I understand that. I really do. Um, But you need to know that's difficult for me to say as much as it is difficult for you to hear, because I think there are a lot of us that that would, would call ourselves and hear me very clearly. I do not mean this in any sort of political way. I mean it in, in a life moral value way, a number of us would consider ourselves to be truly very conservative, specifically the way we relate to the scriptures. Um, But that can still bring a twinge of, oof, I don't know if that, like, can we say that? Can we say that this is sin? Are we allowed to do that? Michael, do you know the world that we live in? I mean, this is the, the world that we live in. We're not allowed to say These things. The world's going to tell you this. You do what feels good. The world is telling you this. They're telling my daughters this. They're telling our children this. You do you. And this is this is, I think, one of the most challenging ones that I consistently hear is just live your truth. These words are deceptive and they end in death. Because they don't yield to the grace of God. Those words are not gracious. We think they're gracious. The enemy is using it because they sound gracious. They sound like they're caring. They sound like they're compassionate. You do whatever you need to do. I love you. I support you. I'll stand with you no matter what. Brothers and sisters, that end is death. Because it's a rejection of what God has set forth. Those words are saying this. This is what you're saying when you're saying you do you. Don't trust God, trust yourself. Don't trust God, trust yourself. Live your truth. Effectually, you're saying don't trust the truth of the Lord. Don't trust that God is who he says he is. At the core of these sins is just this. It's what he starts out in verse 5 with. It's unbelief. 
It's unbelief in trusting and believing that God's order is good. It, it really boils down to unbelief and doubt that God is good. That he really does care for us. And so I would urge us to say this in, the, in this moment. We're called to live with grace and truth. Now, some of us love the truth part of this. And part of that is because we don't struggle with it. You need to understand that and know that. It's really easy for us to condemn others with things that we don't struggle with. We don't struggle with it. So we condemn it. You know why? Because we feel like, hey, I'm actually, I'm, I'm really righteous. That's not right. We're still called to be gracious. To love others. Look at the Gospels. Jesus is not wildly disappointed or shocked at the sins of people. You know what grieves his heart? That they won't believe him. That they won't trust him. Not that they're a sinner. Not that they're, they're broken. It, that sin grieves him, but he understands it. He recognizes that people fail. They sin. They make mistakes. That, that everyone outside of himself has fallen short of the glory of God. He longs for us to believe and trust him. I don't have an answer today in a very succinct way to say this is how we love people who struggle with this. But I, we can start in this place. We've got to be truthful. But we're called to be gracious with that truth. That makes sense? All right, look into verse 8. Jews says this, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams to file the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. All of this is building to this place where he's saying, in a very kind of succinct way, in this moment, he's saying, look, these three examples I've given you of, of, of the wilderness people who have, who have not trusted the, the Israel that God delivered and yet failed to trust him, these who have, who have positions of authority and, and they think that because they have authority they can do whatever they want to and these who reject God's authority in such a way that they live however they want to, um, he's saying that their desire is to find this pleasure in themselves ultimately and this is what it leads to. It leads to punishment. It leads to judgment. It leads to destruction. In verse 9, and this might be the most challenging portion of this, um, there's this story about the archangel Michael who contends with the devil disputing about the body of Moses. And so what's happening in this moment is, again, Jude is using this, this story, this illustration from something his hearers would be very familiar with. It's called the Testament of Moses. And he's using it to retell, to create an illustration to help them understand how God will be judged and how they are called to act. Do you remember in Deuteronomy, there's this, there's this incredible passage, I believe it's in 34, in the latter part of 34, where it describes the very death of Moses. And it uses this phrase that describes the fact that, that no one knows where he's buried. So, so there are all these ancient writings and these stories about Moses, and one of them is in the Testament of Moses, in which the devil is said to say, hey, I want Moses' body. I want to take this for my own because he sinned, because he murdered someone, obviously very early in his life. And the archangel Michael has every bit of authority in the world to rebuke him. And look at what he says. The Lord rebuke you. 
What's Jude doing in this moment? He's saying, live unto the Lord, live righteous lives, and let God be the judge. So just like what has preceded, what's our charge? Is our charge to judge people? No. No. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Judge not. What's our job? Share the truth. Do it graciously. We live in grace and truth. That's what he's calling, and that's why he uses that illustration there. Verse 10, he really highlights, and he says, these people blaspheme. They don't understand. They blaspheme all the things they don't understand, and they're destroyed by all that they understand instinctively. He's talking about these people, these teachers who defiled their flesh because they're trusting in what they want. You ever had anybody tell you, follow your heart? This is a horrible idea. It's deceitful above all things. It'll destroy you. You don't follow your heart. You follow the truth. We trust in the Lord. And so what he's saying in this moment is when we fail to trust the Lord, as these teachers have, our end is destruction. Look in verse 11. This is going to look very much like the gospel, uh, as you'll recognize from gospel passages Jude is pronouncing woes, and he does it through these three very specific stories. He says, woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. So that's the first one. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. So, so what do these things mean? Remember in the Gospels, Jesus would pronounce woes to those who do not trust him, to those who do not believe, to those who do not yield to God's grace. Three things here. One, Cain we know from murdering his brother Abel. We're all really familiar with that from early in Genesis. I think one of the things that we're not familiar with as much is that Cain was known as, in many ways, the prototypical sinner. Not just because he sinned himself, but also he led others and enticed others and and essentially discipled people into sin. And so in this moment, Jude is saying that, that Cain became an instructor in sin. Balaam, the story is found in Numbers 22 and 24. This would be well known to Jude's hearers. This is one who was driven by greed, and like Cain, he encouraged others to sin, to passions of sensuality. And then finally, Korah, he led a rebellion against Moses, and this is found in Numbers 16. He leads this rebellion against Moses and the Levites, the priest, and the earth literally opens up and swallows him and all those that were with him, 250, I believe. All of these accounts are helping Jude's hearers understand the gravity of trusting in oneself and failing to believe the Lord. And he's calling out these false teachers for corrupting others. In verses 12 through 13, you get a picture of where it's happening. Jude describes these things called a love feast. And it's ultimately a, a banquet. It's a celebration. So, so banqueting, eating together in corporate settings, was really important in antiquity. And this time, culturally, it was where people socially gathered. The same way that we do today. When we gather for dinner, or we gather for a party, or we gather at a tailgate... To bond, to connect. But for believers, every time they gathered together and had a love feast, it was more than just a meal. 
Two things. One is the time when the Lord's Supper was celebrated. So typically they would, have, they would have the bread portion at the beginning of this meal. They would eat this large meal and they would conclude with the cup. The other thing was they were called love feasts for a very particular reason. In society at this time, people would have banquets and people would have meals and people would throw parties in order to show who they were to the world in order to build status, in order to build recognition, in order to be seen as important, and in order to network socially and to barter and to gain things from people. But believers did something different. They gathered together and they didn't celebrate themselves, they celebrated each other. They loved each other. They demonstrated the very love of God. Love was the main ethical characteristic that marked these feasts. So think about 1 Corinthians 13, right? Three things, faith, hope, and greatest of these is love. This is on the heels of this beautiful passage in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul presents the illustration of the body. And when I was growing up, when I was younger, I would read this illustration of the body. And I think, this is really beautiful. This is really powerful. Do you know why Paul has to write about the body? Look back into 1 Corinthians 11. Not beautiful. You see this group of people who, instead of loving one another, are coming to gather for a love feast and a meal and the Lord's Supper. And instead, there are people that are being left out. There are people that are on the margins or on the fringes who society would not consider important. And they were literally being, their, their food was being eaten. They were giving no seat of preference. They were given no honor, no care, no love. Why? Because those love feasts were actually just being corrupted and turned into these things where people said, hey, it's about me being important. And so Paul comes back at him. He says, no, you don't understand. You're a part of a body. You're connected to everyone that has trusted in Christ. And what should mark that celebration is love. But Jude's saying there are people sneaking in to this feast and they're celebrating this even. They're taking these elements and they're doing this all under the radar. He's describing the, these situations like these, these, these rainless clouds. So particularly in Israel, Palestine, this area... When, when people saw clouds, they would expect rain. So anytime you saw a cloud and there was no rain that came from it, it was, it was almost recognized as a curse of some sort. He's saying that these people don't deliver anything of value. They're trees that are twice dead and should be uprooted. Nothing they give is helpful. He also describes them as reefs. And what that really means is a rock. And that it's hidden. And that they're in this love feast and they're here in the midst of everyone here coming to the table celebrating. And yet they're deceiving and they're destroying the very truth of God. Verses 14 through 16. Jews closes this section. He quotes from 1 Enoch. Uh, which is really, again, this book that his hearers would know. And that book is really just quoting Deuteronomy and Zechariah and Isaiah. And he's appealing to this story they know about Enoch, about the one who came after Adam, who prophesied, saying that the Lord comes with his holy ones to execute judgment. He's appealing upon this story to impress upon them that judgment comes against those who sin. And look at the way he does it. He says, all the ungodly, all their deeds of ungodliness in an ungodly way, 
and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have done. This is, this is, a, very, this is a very Jewish way of reiterating, of stating over and over and over again and again to help them see the gravity of what's happening because who are these teachers that have crept into the church? They're people who don't really trust the Lord, who don't really believe. Now, look at me. I mean, like, really look at me here for a second. I know you, and you know me. And I think we work really, really hard as a church to really know each other. Like, like my, one of my greatest passions is to know your story and where you've been and where you come from and how uh, that helps me minister the gospel to you. And it helps us grow in community to live in the reality of the gospel together. And as we experience that more, we live it out. It seems unfathomable to think that this could happen here. Truly. That, that teachers could creep in, that people could creep in and espouse these things and just say, oh, well, you can live in this way and that's okay. Or we can tolerate sex outside of marriage. Or you do what your heart wants and, and you can engage in these perverse actions and it's okay because you've trusted in Jesus. You, you, you've been in church your whole life. You've done all this stuff. It's okay. These things happen in churches. They happen all the time. We are not above it. We need to recognize that. We're not above this. But if we understand the truth, then we can embrace it and live graciously. So what's the application? Why would we read Jude? Why would we read all this stuff, right? I want to be Paxton today. I really do. I want to be Ashley. I want to be Stephanie. Actually, I want to be Adam Clayton because he's got a cage behind him. And the way the light hits in here, you kind of can't really see if he's there sometimes. There's real application for us in this. And here's what it is. Here's the first thing. We have to contend for gospel doctrine. We have to contend for it. We have to fight for truth because the world is going to tell us that these things can be shifted and shaped and changed and moved, and, and we can, we can, these things are malleable. They, they, can, they can change. Well, th- that's not really what it means. How do we contend for gospel doctrine? We keep the do- gospel before us consistently, continually. Here's the second thing. What we see against these teachers should be a warning to us, and it should be instruction on how to live. So we're called to live a godly life. Where does it start? It starts in believing the gospel. Not grumbling, not failing to have trust in the Lord. But when God says, go, we go. When God says he loves us, we believe him. We yield our hearts and our life to him. Here's the next thing. This is a call to teachers, myself included. What are we teaching? Are we teaching the truth? Or are we teaching culturally what we think people like to hear truly this is a real challenge i want you guys to like me i really do i mean i'd love to i'd love to be in a place where i would say i don't need anybody in the world to like me right i haven't met one of those people yet and if you have they're lying they're lying to you we got to teach the truth so teachers what are we teaching and here's the thing that i think is is biggest for us We need to pray that we grow in grace and truth. So if you're a truther, 
If you're big on the standards, the principles, the beliefs, the values, you're great with that. You need to pray that you would communicate those things graciously. And ask God to grow you in grace. If you're a gracer, just want to love everybody. Don't want people to be sad. Smiles, not frowns. I want everybody to be happy. Feel loved, genuinely loved. We need to ask God that he would grow us in truth. That he would grow us in communicating truth. And here would be the, the real point of application. You've got to ask this this morning to people around you. We've got to know ourselves. Ask your spouse. Ask your friend. Ask those you're in community group with. This might be a good icebreaker this morning for those 1045 folks. <laughs> you're a gracer or you're a truther? Which one are you? And when you say, I'm a truther, and the whole room kind of scoffs and laughs, you'll know. Turns out you're not. <laughs> but we need, to, we need to do this with one another. We need to truly help one another understand where we are in this. And that brings us this morning to the table. So I, I want to ask Paxton and our worship team to come. Uh, and those elders uh, and deacons uh, that are, that are going to serve this meal alongside us, um, please come to this table. Um, look, we'll, we'll have a love feast this morning. And I want to be very candid with you. It's not going to feel in many ways like a feast. It, it, really, it really won't. Um, it's meager. And hang with me. Hang with me. You got your, you got your place. You and me. Um, but look, this morning you're going to be offered um, in the most compact fashion bread and cup. And you're going to have the opportunity to hear the gospel proclaimed to you. And you get to share in this very tangible, beautiful expression of love. That while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you for the remission of your sins. So this is a moment where we can come together in love and celebrate and be thankful for the blood applied. That we've been given life in Jesus. So if, if you've trusted in Christ, if you surrender your Christ, come to this table and receive this meal. I, I would humbly ask that if you are, are not someone who has trusted in Christ, you've not given your life to Jesus, you have not believed the gospel, and maybe you're beginning to believe, but, but you're not certain about your relationship with Jesus, um, I would ask you to refrain from taking this meal, but I would give you another step. I would say, please come find myself or Joe Harvey or Brian Marbury or Chase or Zach or Gary or any of us and let us tell you who Jesus is and what he's done for you so that you might receive him and come to Christ and then share in this meal. Um, let's just take a moment together to bow our heads um, and prepare for an opportunity to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Heavenly Father, put a hard word before us this morning and yet a good one as a friend reminded me it's a good word would you instruct us on how to live and you longingly show us your love for us in this your pursuit of us in this your goodness that's running after us in this you long for our church to be pure with doctrine that describes who you are and what you've done for us so that we would know you truly God and that we would, we would have a culture that exhibits in a gracious manner, that truth. So, Father, let us think on those things as we come. That your mercies are new this morning. That you loved us so much that you did not spare your son, Jesus, 
his body broken, his blood shed, so that we might have life with you. God, help us to taste and see your goodness in this moment. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to invite you to come to this table. I love it if you come with somebody uh, and not come alone to the best of your ability. Uh, I've also never been to a love feast or a meal where everybody sat quietly. So we can be reverent in heart, but you should stand and you should hug one another and you should shake hands and you should smile as you come to this table. Um, Have a reverent heart, absolutely. Uh, but, But be with God's people and celebrate his gifts. Come.